The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Shana Klein. She is an art historian, assistant professor of art history at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, and the author of a terrific new book that we will be focused on today titled The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. I saw her present for the Pepin Lecture Series in Food Studies through Boston University, and I immediately fell in love with her work because of our shared interests in food and media literacy. Dr. Klein received a Ph.D. in art history from the University of New Mexico, and she was awarded several impressive fellowships for her research, including the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the U.S. Capitol Building, the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, and others. Her research interests include American visual and material culture, food studies, race and post-colonial studies, and art and social justice. And her explorations of art, food, and racism have been featured on a number of digital publications and podcasts. Welcome, Shana. Thank you so much, Melinda. That was such a kind introduction, and I am thrilled to be talking to you today. Well, your book is such a comprehensive dive into fruit and fruit imagery through an art world perspective. So I want to start out by asking you, how and why did you become interested in this particular area? Yeah, it's a little bit of a roundabout story. So I am a proud graduate from the University of New Mexico, and they have great faculty in Latin American, Native American, African American art. These are histories that are generally marginalized in my discipline. So I have a unique education in both traditional and non-traditional art. And so I had the privilege of taking a class on Central American art history, and I learned about the work of Moises Barrios. Barrios is a contemporary Guatemalan artist, And he paints the display windows of Banana Republic clothing stores, which sounds kind of quirky. But he does this to urge viewers to consider, why do we have this clothing company named after Banana Republics, which is, by the way, a racial slur. It is a slur that characterizes countries um, that have political instability or financial corruption. In large part, this is due to American political intervention. So companies like the United Fruit Company, which was a banana company, that intervened in Latin American politics over and over again in the most destructive ways. And so looking at Barrios's work got me thinking how food is so political, that even something as seemingly innocuous as a banana is really politically charged. And so it inspired me to look back into art history, and I wanted to see, you know, where are some of the first images of the banana in American art. And it was all kind of happening in the late 1800s, the early 20th century. This is a time period, by no accident, when Americans are starting to 
try to colonize and control areas abroad. And so the banana appears in art in kind of real time when Americans are getting more access to the banana as the business is growing, the importation business is growing abroad. So once I started seeing the politics of food in one painting, I couldn't unsee it, and it just exploded from there. That's what media literacy does. Mm-hmm. Once you see things, you can't unsee you can't them. Unsee it. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's the same way once you learn about things, you can't unlearn them. Right. And it ends up influencing everything we do if we're paying attention. And I think your book yeah. helps us pay attention. I'm glad you mentioned Barrios. You have chosen one of his images to be on the cover of your book, and it's a bunch of bananas with military planes on them. It must have been hard to pick a single image. Why did you settle on this one? Yeah, I felt like Barrios's painting was a kind of culmination of this topic to begin with, a topic that was originally my dissertation. So I've been living with this research for so many years before it became a book publication. But Barrios' work is also, I think, really eye-catching and in some ways uses the same seductive and persuasive techniques as food advertisements, but reverses it by showing a critical look at how some of our food systems fail us or how some of these advertisements persuade us in dangerous ways. Okay, so you have divided this book up into five chapters, and obviously Bananas is one of the chapters. You also have The Grape oranges, and watermelon, and pineapple. Why did you choose those five foods specifically? Yeah, so after doing so many years of research and inventorying museum websites and also looking at so much archival information, I was really just trying to chronicle what foods kept appearing over and over again. And so something like the grape is one of the most visible fruits in American art and visual culture. So I was really interested in the visibility of fruits, But more importantly, these were the fruits that I chose because they seem to be some of the most politically loaded fruits. They seem to be stimulating conversations about race and citizenship and the landscapes where they were grown. So a lot of the fruits in my book, they were grown in landscapes that were considered frontiers or they were considered borderlands. They were at the center of debates over whether or not these lands should be incorporated into the colonial American empire. And so these were the fruits that were a platform for artists and viewers to press upon these larger conversations about society. Well, we've just got 30 minutes. So I thought the approach that I would take would be to look at some key takeaways from each of these chapters. And let's start with grapes. They're the first chapter. And what I found most disturbing about the whole grape story was the fact that the grape industry, the wine industry, mm-hmm. was really built by the hard labor of Asian labor workforces as well as Native and certainly the Latino workforce. So you've got an image showing workers on a farm in California, mm-hmm. and you've got some images of Asian laborers. and. Right. After this image was published, many people wrote in complaining that they didn't want their wine to be produced by less than pure workers, meaning anybody that wasn't white. 
Yeah, so I can help set the scene. This is an illustration that was done by Paul Frenzeni, and it was for a widely circulating journal called Harper's Weekly. And the illustration on the surface seems so innocent. We're looking at a kind of jolly illustration of mostly Asian immigrant grape laborers stomping grapes with their feet, raising their hands in the air. It looks like a big kind of fun, rowdy party. But after this illustration was published, a few people wrote in and expressed anxiety about it, saying that they did not want to look at this illustration of California grape culture. They didn't want to see Chinese people stomping grapes with their, quote, filthy feet and limbs. And so I use this illustration as a kind of moment of pregnant pause for my readers, for them to consider how something as small and seemingly innocent as the grape stimulated larger conversations in their representation about who should have the privilege of cultivating America's fruits, who has the racial purity of cultivating America's fruitlands, that something, again, as small as a grape could trigger these racist anxieties. And you also report that promoting grapes and promoting the American wine industry was a way to expand the nation westward. That's right. I mean, they're using horticulturists and vintners are using very imperialist rhetoric when talking about grape culture. They're describing how installing vineyards in the rugged western wilderness was a way to bring civilization to the western frontier. It was a way to bring sophistication to California, and it was a way to claim and dominate that land. So grape cultivation really becomes this method of control and conquering that landscape, which had been previously owned by Mexican Californios, and before them, it had been owned by indigenous people for centuries. And so there's a, a long legacy of who that landscape belongs to historically, but also the way that grape growing and viticulture is used to maintain control over that land. Well, the next chapter is about citrus. And you reported that this is your favorite chapter. <laughs> yes. Because it tends to be more positive. Now, this was fascinating to me. And what jumped out for me was the fact that citrus growing was a way to, after the Civil War, northerners then were able to go into the south Mm -hmm. and bring their northern culture into the southern space. So talk about why this is your favorite chapter. Yeah, so I feel like when people pick up my book, they're probably going to be attracted to the flashier chapters on like the pineapple or the banana, but the orange chapter is my favorite because I make some surprising discoveries, one of them being that it's northerners, not southerners, but northerners who are spearheading the Florida orange industry. So northerners are moving to the south after the Civil War, and they are installing orange groves as a way to make a profit, but also to change the politics and the economics of the South after the Civil War. They are helping to move the economy away from tobacco, cotton, and industries that were tarnished by the recent history of slavery. And so orange growing carried this kind of optimism that this would usher in a new chapter for Southerners, and particularly for newly freed, emancipated African Americans. Many Northerners, they're hiring newly freed black men and women on their orange groves as a way to give them a new profession, albeit it's condescending and their approach is patronizing. But they're doing this in what they conceive to be as a charitable act, as a way to reconstruct and rehabilitate the South and the people who live there. And the images of African Americans are largely positive, 
You know, I wouldn't even say that they're positive. I would say that they're remarkable because they're neutral. And so right. many images from this time period. I mean, we're still in the Reconstruction and also Jim Crow period. They are so terribly caricatured. They are really racist and nasty, cruel stereotypes in the way that African Americans are displayed in most mainstream images and photographs. And so that we have a kind of straightforward look at black people being the backbone of this important industry, it shows them with dignity and it shows them with integrity, which sadly is such a departure from the norm in how black people are represented in this time period. And on that note, that takes us to the watermelon chapter. What I learned in that chapter was that watermelons before the Civil War were seen as giving Africans agency. And mm -hmm. they brought this fruit from their native country, and they planted it in slave gardens. And yet, after the Civil War, the watermelon became a racist weapon through imagery. That's exactly right. So the watermelon is an import to the United States. We think that it mostly came across the Atlantic Ocean on the transatlantic slave trade from Africa. It's an African fruit. And it's also something that many enslaved people are cultivating on slave gardens. And slave gardens are one of the only sites where African Americans have any sense of autonomy or independence away from enslavers. And so this is a site of agency, what we'd call agency today, or, you know, a site of power and empowerment. It's an African fruit that enslaved people are cultivating on their own without too much interference. And so it's no accident and probably no surprise that the watermelon and its relationship to independence then gets totally reversed by image makers after the Civil War who are using the watermelon and designing it in their images to then make claims that African Americans are an inferior race, that they are a savage people, that they are unfit as citizens. And so you see thousands and thousands of racist imagery of African Americans hoarding watermelon stealing watermelon, drooling over the fruit, morphing into it. The word that I use to describe the watermelon stereotype in art is relentless. Mm. There's no surface that it didn't touch, high art, low art, and there's no area of the country that it didn't graze. So I found images in the south, the north, as far west as Hawaii. And so it's a stereotype that was really relentless and so pervasive in American visual culture. Before we leave that, let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Shana Klein, and she is an art historian, the author of The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. She's also an assistant professor of art history at Kent State University. Okay, I can't leave the watermelon chapter without the striking photograph that you bring forth from Carrie Mae Weems. She brings back respect and agency, and she's got an image of an African-American male. He's handsome. He's strong. He's holding a whole watermelon, but it's clear that this is a constructed image. Tell me about that image and what it means to you. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that into the conversation because... Like I mentioned, the watermelon stereotype was relentless, and it's pervasive in so many images, and that is the least rewarding part of this research, right, to talk about the way in which images perpetuate these terrible racist attitudes. But I also fold in examples in my book and research of ways that artists are using the watermelon or fruits 
to combat these stereotypes, to resist them. And Carrie Mae Weems is a great example because she has this amazing photograph of a black man standing tall, again, with all the dignity and integrity of maybe some of those orange photographs. He's holding the watermelon with his hands, and you can see and feel the weight of the watermelon. It's so heavy, as if to extend it metaphorically to the the weight and the burden that black people are shouldered with, with this nasty stereotype. And then in the background, you can see the skylight, and perhaps it was her studio. So that signals to us that this image was crafted, thoughtfully created by the artist, as a way to also signal how images from the past of Watermelon have been created and crafted and manufactured over time to send these really dangerous messages. And so she uses her own photograph to dismantle that, to expose it, but also to demonstrate a more dignified image of a black man holding a watermelon that is uncut, as if to suggest that he's refusing to open up this conversation to racist images of the past. This is just so fascinating. And how many of us are aware of how much images affect how we think? Yeah, as an art historian, that's part of my job. It's to teach my students and to teach any listeners who are interested that visual images do something that a poem does not. Visual images perform work that perhaps music does not. They have this unique ability to kind of float in our visual universe and in ways we internalize images differently from other aspects of the humanities. And that's what makes them so powerful. But like I also keep saying, it also makes them a bit dangerous because they infiltrate our visual psyche. We take in these messages maybe without knowing it. And the beauty of your book is that you help us deconstruct and understand what you're seeing before these images have a way of affecting our thinking. And then once we start thinking a certain way, it's hard to shift, isn't it? Yeah, and that is the greatest compliment, by the way. (laughs) Thank you for thinking that's the accomplishment of this work. That would be really rewarding for me to hear if that's the case, because hopefully this also tunes everyone's antenna to think more critically about visual images, to consider something like the color, the texture, or the perspective of a work of art, how all of these are deliberate decisions by the artist to communicate certain messages. And so I hope readers can think more critically and feel more empowered now that they have the tools to look at these images and deconstruct them. Right. Bananas are the next chapter, and we sort of touched on that. Is there anything else you want us to know about bananas before we jump into pineapples? With the banana chapter and also with some of the other research I do, it's important to me that I recover the histories of women, that women are really important to food histories because they were considered the directors of the home, the authorities on food, the purchasers of food. So it's also in the banana chapter that I talk about dining room culture and how women are helping to incorporate the banana into American homes and that we should not neglect how women also shaped commercial expansion and the American empire. It's funny that you bring that up because I am a product of the College of Home Economics. Mm. That's where dietetics programs have been traditionally housed. And home economists have been targeted by these different industries, fruit, vegetables, you know, you name it, cookware, because we're seen as those who can carry that culture forward. And you've got these beautiful images of banana dishes, and of course, the cookbooks and recipes. So we are the conduits to carry this way of thinking and eating forward. 
So I love that all of these fields are coming together. I did want to ask a question about one image called Banana Boy. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could help me understand that image because most images of food or fruit in this particular case that we're trying to promote are often seen as in a, a higher class light, right? If you want to be successful, you'll choose this food. Certainly, like aspirational. Exactly. But in the case of Banana Boy, he is clearly a child that's probably working in a factory. His pants mm-hmm. are torn, he's missing a tooth, and right. he's holding a banana. Why do you think the artist chose that image? I love this painting because it shows a boot black. So a young boy who was probably maybe an immigrant from Eastern Europe, that's generally the population for a boot black in Manhattan. And the artist John George Brown shows him holding the banana, and I think he's holding it upside down because the nub that we use to open the banana, it's pointed toward the ground. And so I interpret this as a boy who is unfamiliar with this fruit. This was likely painted in the late 19th century when bananas were still not accessible on a mainstream level to a mainstream degree. And so many Americans thought the banana was very exotic for most of the 1800s. And so here we have in painting this witness and record of a boy probably experiencing the fruit for the first time or the second time because there's a banana peel at his feet. And he shows excitement and interest and eagerness in looking at the banana. And the banana, unlike a lot of foods, was well accepted pretty immediately by American consumers. People were really bananas, pun intended, for the banana. And so this is an early image that I think documents some of these first encounters with the fruit in the United States until it becomes more widely imported and widely circulating in the early 20th century with companies like United Fruit. And I thought it was interesting, you report this in the text, that bananas were sold peeled and sliced yeah. and wrapped in foil because they were too phallic for yeah, women to be so eating. <laughs> right, that women, and this isn't my research, actually, I'm indebted to a scholar before me who wrote this, that she reported it was cut into slices and wrapped in foil because it was so improper and impolite for a woman in public to be eating the very phallic banana. Wow. Gosh, there's such great history in food, isn't there? Yes, I know. I love it. It's a quirky subject. Well, we have to jump to the pineapple. And I will tell you that the story that you told in the Pepin lecture that jumped out to me was that Georgia O'Keeffe had been hired to do a painting of the pineapple. She wanted to visit a cannery where these pineapples were being processed. She was not given permission. So what did she do? So by the end of the trip, she's literally there to paint a pineapple. That is why the Dole Hawaiian Pineapple Company has sent her to Honolulu. They reject her request to stay on a pineapple plantation, and she leaves Honolulu without ever painting a single pineapple. And instead, the rumor goes she painted a papaya, which was Dole's rival. So I use this example to talk about the different degrees of cooperation with empire, that it's not so black and white, that there are nuances and different degrees to how artists were supporting or resisting or maybe both in their images to support commercial expansion. Eventually, they eke out a pineapple painting from O'Keeffe. They send her a budding pineapple on a Pan Am clipper to her penthouse apartment in Manhattan, And she creates this painting that they then use for their advertisement. So I guess everyone kind of leaves the situation happy. But it shows you how there was some tension in which 
companies did not necessarily want their artists to be in the know of how their workers were living and the conditions for the production of their food. And I love the way that you describe how the pineapple was seen as this exotic paradise through imagery. And you've got some great photos in the book. But that's on the one hand that we're going to sell this exotic paradise, and it supports national expansion and Hawaiian statehood. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand is the reality that there is a lot of violence and land takeover. Yeah, I mean, the whole pineapple industry is built on the violence. It is established on the violence of indigenous removal. The population of indigenous Hawaiians is diminished so profoundly after white entrepreneurs and the U.S. government annex Hawaii in the late 1800s. And so a person like James Dole takes advantage of that. He benefits from that legacy of indigenous removal, as do many other businessmen who start their enterprises and their empires in Hawaii as a result of taking over and conquering that land that was not theirs. It's fascinating history of our food through images that we don't take the time to think about. So you have helped us do that. We just have a couple of minutes, and I want to make sure that our listeners know that you are not making a profit from this book, that all the royalties are going to the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Do you want to just say a little bit about why you made that decision? Yeah, so the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the CIW, is a terrific organization that is internationally known, and they are working to raise the very dismal wages of farm workers in the United States. They're also working to give more power to farm workers so that they can have more control and regulation within their own industry. And they're also helping to eliminate some of the terrible abuses that happen for farm workers, especially women, and conditions that are very much like slavery. People say, you know, slavery has been abolished in 1863, 1865. That's not true. The way that a lot of our farm workers work, their conditions mirror very closely slavery. And so it was important to me that the social justice thread that underlines all of my research and all of the courses that I teach, I want to continue with that and make sure that I give back by donating all of these royalties in perpetuity to the CIW. So I hope that people will be inspired to look them up and also support them. They do incredible work. Yeah, it's a tragedy of the winter tomatoes that we don't think about. So Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to you for that generosity. We've got to close, but I want to bring forth two statements that you say, one in the introduction and one in the conclusion. You write that attention to visual representations should be a requirement for any scholar studying food because consumers encounter food through images, not just the foods themselves. And I would extend that to say that attention to visual representations of our food should be a requirement for anyone who eats. And then in your conclusion, you wisely write that you hope this book will inspire readers to probe all representations of food more deeply and use them to metabolize questions about where food comes from, who produces it, why it matters, and how visual images obviate or hide the answers to these very questions. I want to thank you so much for this body of work and for being my guest today. Thank you so much, Melinda. Hearing you repeat those words back to me was chilling. I have goosebumps because those really are two critical mottos that underline everything that I do. 
And let me also reinforce that. I do not want my research to be a period at the end of the sentence. I want people to jump on this research and take it in other directions and think about how avocados are visualized, how tomatoes are depicted in art. This is not the final word. There's so much more to be done. And I'm appreciative of you giving me this platform. Oh, well, we've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank Dr. Shana Klein, art historian, assistant professor of art history at Kent State University, and author of this tremendous book, The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. Thank you again. Thank you, Melinda.